and especially the verses we find, verses 6 and 8, what we find in these two verses, though they're very closely bound with the whole passage. We can read from verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, or which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, or the death of the cross. And although the following verses, of course, are very closely tied in, we want to confine our thoughts uh, to these verses this evening as we continue uh, to look at, and this is the, the final passage on the cross that we're looking at in advance of uh, the communion, God willing, next Lord's Day. Now, there are some passages in the Bible, uh, and you know pretty quickly when you start reading, reading them that you're being led into the depths, uh, that you're really coming to almost jump off the deep end theologically, as it were, and this is certainly one of them. It's one of the most tremendous and greatest passages in all the Bible, um, and it sets out for us uh, some points that are so full of meaning and teaching that we can't possibly do justice to all of them in one sitting. And the, even those we're looking at tonight, there's a lot more that we uh, could actually take out in relation to them. But I want to try and cover the main points in these three verses, verses 6 to 8, so that we can apply that uh, to our preparation for the Lord's Supper itself. And if we can set out some way, by way of headings, what you might call some flotation aids, if you like, so that we don't sink altogether into uh, this great theological passage, um, we're going to look at two things. Firstly, the information that's given here about Jesus. And secondly, how that information is applied to Christian conduct. The information that's given, as Paul set this out for the Philippians, and as that information is then used and applied, uh, he applies it and we apply it to our Christian conduct. And the information about Jesus, we'll divide that into three as well. First of all, that he always existed as God. Secondly, that he became a servant. And thirdly, that his death was the pinnacle of his service, of his serving. And for the second the information applied to Christian conduct, we'll see briefly that this great theology is specifically applied to everyday Christian conduct. And secondly, that there are two matters especially mentioned, unity and harmony, and that the relation between them is so very important, and it's something that's directly uh, related to what's said about Jesus himself. So firstly, the information about Jesus, and first of all in that, that he always existed as God. He says, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though, or who being in the form of God. That's where he begins with his thoughts about the Lord as he sets him out and gives the information. He begins in the highest point. He begins at that highest point of God and Jesus being God. Jesus being himself the Son of God and he puts it here in the form of God. Now when he says here that he was in the form of God, that itself is a rich description, a rich phrase to describe this Jesus. 
And it doesn't mean that he was something like God, but not quite God. That doesn't mean that he was somehow less than God. When he says here he was in the form of God, it's a phrase, a word, the word form, and the phrase means fully God. Everything that was true that makes God to be God is found in this person. And that's where he begins his thoughts about Jesus. That is what he's going to apply to our human conduct and to how we need to be in relation to each other. He's taking us to this height of Jesus being in the form of God, not less than God, not something like God, not almost God, but God. The form of God in substance. God. And then he goes on to say, who, being in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, or made himself, as the A.V. has it in the uh, A.V., it says, made himself of no reputation. And all of that really is very closely tied together. But he says he did not count equality with God, did not regard that, as something to be grasped. Now, what does he mean by that? He doesn't mean that equality with God was not something that he had. We've said that the words in the form of God means that he was God and is God in every sense in which God is God. And therefore, it cannot be that uh, the next part of it means that he was aspiring to something that he didn't possess. Being in the form of God, he did not think equality with God was something to be grasped. It doesn't mean something he didn't have that he was aspiring to or reaching. What it means basically, in as simple a form as we can put it, is that what he possessed as the Son of God, the position, the status he possessed, he did not think that being in the form of God meant that he could not descend from that. We're actually facing um, things which we cannot adequately use find human language, at least I can, to describe the immensity of what's involved in this. We can put it something like this. He did not retain uh, the position or the status he had as the Son of God, as the King of of creation. Uh, Because you need to go into verse 7. Instead of retaining that position, he made himself of no reputation. Uh, he made himself nothing. In other words, Paul is thinking of the fact that here, in fact, is the king of kings. Here is the creator. Here is God. Here is one who in every sense is and was God prior to his coming to be man, prior to his coming into this world in Jesus Christ. But he didn't actually argue from the fact that he was God nothing less than God. He didn't argue from that that he couldn't possibly become human and that he couldn't possibly come into this world with all that it contained of its sinfulness and depravity. He didn't count this being God something to hold on to to prevent his downward step into this world. The eternal king became a servant. That's essentially what it's saying what he was and is as God. He did not use that in any way, if you like to put it in so many words, as an argument against us becoming human and indeed becoming human in this world of suffering and taking to himself 
not only human nature but the sin of his people the king became a servant he didn't cease to be the king he still remained the king he still remained God but God now as never before he didn't cease to be something that he was before he came but he added something that he was never before and that's human and human in suffering and human even to the point of death if you saw the situation if you heard if Her Majesty the Queen tomorrow like think of the situation if suddenly there was an announcement from Buckingham Palace that the Queen had decided for six months she was going to take a total sabbatical from her position from the status that she has as Queen uh, from the entourage that accompanies her and is part of that royal retinue that belongs to royalty if she was going to actually say I'm going to actually give this up this position I'm going to give it up for six months I'm going to take up a position that just washes potatoes washes pots and pans becomes a kitchen maid a scullery maid I'm not decrying that in any way I'm not denigrating that position in case anybody thinks that but you think of the step away from the position from the royalty from the, from the trappings of royalty into that position that she would then have put herself into for a while well what Paul is saying is here is one and you begin with his dignity and his royalty and his being in the form of God and being fully God and he didn't argue from that I can't become a servant he didn't argue from that that in order to save sinful people he couldn't possibly enter into a position where he would take their human nature and in that human nature give himself to the death of the cross and to the degradation and the suffering that was going to be involved in his lot in this world. In fact, it's the opposite, isn't it? What Paul is saying is, though being in the form of God did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held onto, come what may, instead of that, he became a servant. He took the form of a servant. That's the next point. He was, always existed in the, in the, always existed as God, but he became a servant. He didn't hold on to that position, that royal position, that uh, position he had prior to time, prior to creation itself. Instead, he made himself nothing the AV words are actually a very good translation there uh, he made himself of no reputation taking the form of a servant now you see the same language is used there of the servant as was used of God in the form of God he is fully God and he took the form of a servant that means he became what a servant truly is. He placed himself under authority. He placed himself in a position where he served others. He placed himself below what he actually had in his position as the Son of God in glory in eternity. He made himself of no reputation by taking the form of a servant. And you see that again emphasizes that 
what he became as a servant was not by divesting himself of deity of being God though he actually did indeed come to be a servant in the true sense of the word and of course he demonstrated that so much during his life on earth and in speaking about his position and in showing in the likes of the foot washing in John 13 that he had indeed taken the form of a servant that he had willingly taken that to himself without ceasing to be God and he was therefore born into that position taking human nature and in doing so taking the form of a servant a staggering thought isn't it that at that moment God became something he had never been before in the person of his son that he entered into circumstances that he willingly took to himself he became a servant you remember when you come to the Lord's table or witness the Lord's table next Lord's day what you're looking at is the service of Jesus what you're looking at is the death of the servant of servants and what you're looking at is how he himself came to take that form of a servant by taking our human nature which is why he says being born in the likeness of men now isn't that itself a staggering point that God in the person of Jesus came to be born it's the same person you see all the way through these statements and the Bible sometimes as we said uh, and as I think I referred to in prayer brings us to things that stagger us that we cannot fully comprehend but don't dismiss them as untrue just because you can't comprehend them there is a mystery about the person of Jesus Christ that you cannot penetrate at least only penetrate in a measure and when you come up against your limitations in that don't listen to the secularists or to the atheists who tell you well that just demonstrates that you believe things that are illogical things that are foolish no, paradoxes are not the same thing as being illogical and when you come to the person of Jesus Christ, as indeed many other aspects of God himself, you're always going to come against things which are a mystery. And if you take the element of mystery away from the Bible and from what you understand about God and his workings, you're not left with God. And if you try and not believe until you understand things fully, that's exactly what you're doing, taking away what is ultimately a mystery. Because we're dealing with God and the being of God and the actions of God and the will of God, the mind of God and in the person of Jesus, the Son of God being born. Well, here is someone who came to be dependent on a human mother. And if you have in your mind that picture that you find in the Gospels of Jesus being born, born in the way that you and I are usually born, but sinless. Nevertheless, he's truly human. He's a helpless infant as a human being. He's dependent on his mother. His mother cradles him, gives him the support. And yet at the same time as God, he's the one who upholds her being and her life. Now that's a mystery, but it's true. 
You don't have to be able to understand it all in order to actually appreciate it and believe it. Theologians from the past, way back in theology and reform theology, tell us and we keep emphasizing the fact that because Jesus Christ has two natures, the one person of the Son of God has two natures, divine nature and a human nature, never mixed but together in his person, it means whatever is true of one nature is true of him. Whatever is true of his human nature is true and you attribute it to his person. In other words, when you think of his human nature uh, and his weakness, his liability to pain and his need of sleep and rest, that's the Son of God. That's attributable to his person. And then, of course, at the same time, as he is divine, so he's the one who upholds all things as the creator and sustainer. That's the greatness of Jesus. Just as you find uh, that amazing description by Peter in his sermon there in Acts chapter 2, uh, where you find, Acts chapter 3 rather, uh, where you find him there as he's setting out these great facts of Christ's death and Christ's resurrection in verses 14 to 15. Uh, this is what he's saying. Remember the God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted unto you. That's itself an amazing, um, an amazing comparison. The one who was guilty of murder was let free and the innocent one, at least in terms of his own actions, was actually found guilty and sent, set to be crucified. But there's more than that, he says... Uh, you killed the author of life. That's the ultimate paradox, isn't it? I can't understand that. But I believe it. I owe my life, as you know, owe your being and your life to Jesus. Without him, nothing was made that was made, is John's great statement in beginning his gospel. That didn't cease when he became man, when he took human nature to himself. He is still the Son of God. He is still God. He's the author of life. And he gave himself to death. You killed, he said, the author of life. That's what's before us in the Lord's Supper. That's why it's our privilege to take communion. Because this is who we remember. This is who he is. This is what he did. This is what he became. This is what he left behind when he came from the heights of his regal glory in heaven and descended into the depths of suffering and servitude as a human being. That's the mocking, the shame, the unique combination that you find in Jesus and his um, ministry, his life in this world. Well, that takes us to our next point. His death was the pinnacle of his serving. He always existed as God. He became a servant. His death was the pinnacle of his serving. So he says being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Wouldn't you think that for God to actually come to be human, that that was enough, that that was low enough, 
that that was such a great step in itself that he couldn't be asked surely to go any further into the depths of humiliation and humbling of himself and suffering and all that was involved. But it's like that. His coming to be human is the first step into his being in the form of a servant. And it culminates in the death of the cross. That unique combination of steps further and further down into the degradation of his suffering, the combination uniquely in Jesus of these elements of obedience and suffering and humbling as, as his life went on and as, his, as the demands became increasingly laid upon him, as he became near, as he came nearer to the cross, as he came to Gethsemane, and as Mark tells, he began to be amazed as the reality of his situation then came to even more fully be appreciated by him, and he wrestled with God and sought this cup, if it possible, that it be passed from him. Nevertheless, he said, not my will, but thine be done. The more the demands increased, the more his obedience kept up with it, and the further he humbled himself towards the death of the cross. There's that great um, description or that great verse in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8, isn't there? Though son, though a son, which really means though the son. Though son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made complete, that's to say, being made complete in the sense of having learned that obedience to the point of giving himself to the death of the cross, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. What a staggering thing. Another mystery, another impenetrable or only partly penetrable truth that we're brought um, face to face with there. Though a son, though the son of God, that's who he was, that's who he remained. He learned obedience. Isn't it amazing that the person of the Son of God, who as God knows all things, had to learn anything? But he learned obedience. How did he learn obedience? By the things which he suffered. Through his life as a servant, which is really where obedience, where obedience is found at the heart of being a servant. But he became obedient unto death, all through the mocking, the shame, the scourging, the beating, the crucifixion. Nevertheless, he became obedient unto death. It says here, to the point of death. And in some ways you can maybe misunderstand that. Really, literally, the text says, he was obedient unto death. It doesn't mean to the point of death where he reached the border of death and then say, well, that's enough, I can't go further. No, it means the entirety of death. Everything that death is that we brought upon ourselves, both physical and spiritual and eternal, Jesus died that death. Jesus was obedient unto death in its fullness. He didn't avoid any of it. And death didn't actually take him. We'll see that in a moment. It was actually that he gave himself or surrendered himself to death. There never has been 
there never will be another death like it. Death takes us. It didn't take Jesus. He gave himself to it. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When it was finished, he had given himself to death. He surrendered to it. Even the death of the cross, not as far as as death, but no further, but fully into the whole of what death really is. And even the death of the cross, because the cross always in, in Paul's writings is really death in all aspects of it, spiritually and in all its dimensions eternally too. That is what Jesus took. That's what the death of the cross is. There is no other cross. There were many, many crucifixions during the time of the Romans, but none like this one. This is the only one of its kind. Nobody else died like this. Nobody else could. He is God, and his death in our nature was the pinnacle of his serving. My God, my God, he said, why have you forsaken me? That too is mystery. That's the crux, the heart of our redemption. The cross is physical. The places in this world, the event is historical. The transaction is spiritual and eternal. God, as Luther put it, forsaken of God. That's where our salvation emanates from, or at least the way it's worked out, emanating from God's love through the cross until we come to know salvation for ourselves. Well, uh, Hugh Martin, in his great work on the atonement, is concerned to emphasize that Christ was active at all stages through his ministry in the world, including his death. It wasn't that he came to the point of of the cross and of the death of the cross and ceased to be active as if death was simply something done to him. Martin is concerned, very rightly, to emphasize that in fact, in his death, Jesus is active, as active as he has ever been in giving himself to death. This is what he said. We speak of Christ's doing and of his dying. His dying was his grandest doing. So you remember when you come to the Lord's table next Lord's Day, that you are thinking there of an action of Christ in giving himself to death, his activity in death, to the point of fulfilling that death which was required of him as the servant of the Father. So who dares say tonight that God is unloving, that God is uncaring, that God is remote from the things of this world, that he is virtually absent from the events that take place in human society, human experience not this God not the God of Calvary not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ not God in the person of his Son not the Father giving the Son not the Son as the servant of the Father 
nothing remote about this. It's the most intense and personal and concerned involvement in our human condition that you can find anywhere. It's the Son of God. Always existing as God, who became a servant, whose death is the pinnacle of his serving. The information about Jesus. We've only skimmed the surface, but there's enough in what we've seen really to give us an appreciation, surely, that this is something quite outstandingly unlike anything you find anywhere else. And secondly, the information as Paul applies it to the Philippians, and therefore as we apply it to our own Christian conduct. The first thing to note is that theology is for conduct. Theology is to be applied to our life as it is in this world. And Jesus himself actually took the truth about himself and applied it to the circumstances that his disciples were in and really brought to bear upon their situation at times some of the most profound theology, some of the most amazing and grandest truths about himself. For example, Luke chapter 22, verses um, 22 to 27 you read there that there was a dispute among them who or which of them should be the greatest. Imagine coming to that point, having been with Jesus all that time, and they're coming towards this time of the Passover when Jesus is actually going to reach the point of giving himself to the death of the cross, having taught them something about all of that beforehand. What are they doing? They're disputing among themselves. They're quarreling. They're quibbling over which of them should be the greatest. And you know, that fits in so well with this passage in Philippians where the information about Jesus is applied to um, the situation of the Philippians. That's what you see there in verses 2 to 4. Complete my joy, says Paul, that you be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you or among you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Not any other mind, not any other kind of mind or attitude or behavior. But the mind of the servant. The mind in the found in the servant par excellence in Jesus himself. And when he thinks about this, it applies to our daily situation, our daily problems, our daily concerns, our relationships, our life as a church, as a congregation, our family life, our home life, our life in public, our difficulties in public, our difficulties as Christians in the world. And indeed, our own ego too. Paul is saying to us, take that to the cross. See how you measure up. See where your sense of being important really is in relation to the mind that was in Jesus. And then you find these two twins that he mentions here, unity and harmony. We're just going to deal with them very briefly. Verse 2, he says, 
complete my joy that you be of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind do nothing from rivalry or conceit you see it's really they're emphasizing the mind the mind that was in Christ Jesus where does harmony begin uh, where does uh, unity begin where does the maintenance of unity where does the continuation of unity among God's people which is so important where does it begin it begins in the mind it begins in the attitude it begins into what I think what I think of myself what I think of others what I think of God it's not something that you do just practically without thinking without the application of your mind have this mind in you let this be your mind so that you actually be of the same mind of the same love being in full accord. In other words, unity in the truth of God that is given to us. We're all going to have differences uh, of opinion about things that aren't clearly revealed or things that are not essential to the Christian faith or found, foundational. We all have our different personalities, different mindsets, different circumstances. But you had all of that in Philippi. And Paul is saying, this is what I'm seeking from you. That you be of the same mind, the same love, and being in full accord and of one mind. And then verses 3 to 4, he moves into what's more like harmony, um, which is something, again, which, like unity, is not something that comes automatically. And you don't find a choir that's polished in its renderings of whatever choral piece they're singing, whether it's psalms or other pieces of music or whatever it is, you don't find them coming to a polished performance overnight. You don't find that happening without effort. You don't find it without work, without application. Well, church unity is like that. And church unity is like that because what he says here, as you see the verbs that he's using, they move from plural, and as you go into verses 3 and 4, they come to be singular. Where he says, let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Why the change to the singular from the plural? Well, because while the aim is church unity, the responsibility for that ultimately is mine and yours as individuals. As we form one member of the overall body of the church, you know, nowhere in the history of the church, I think it's fair to say, was the unity of the church prized more than by our Scottish theologians of the past. And indeed some of the present, of course, too. That's why people like Knox and Rutherford, Durham, all the way through to Chalmers and Cunningham, why they emphasize the seriousness of disrupting the unity of the church and the harmony of the church. And they didn't just mean that at a spiritual level, at an unseen level. They meant that where it is actually seen in human relationships one with another. And that's what we have to prize. And that's what we have to guard against it being interrupted. We can say it was truthful heart that we're a united congregation that we prize unity that we love harmony even though we accept all the diversity 
of gifts and personalities and viewpoints and other things that we hold. And we have the freedom to do that. But here is Paul saying, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Where does bullying come from? Where does the pressure from our young people on our young people come from? Well, it comes essentially from this. From people, whether we're young or old, looking to our own interests, not the interests of others. And from people saying that we are equally significant, at least to others, if not more so. All what Paul is saying is, think each of you. Count others more significant than yourselves. I find that exceedingly difficult to live up to. So do you. But I have to try. And I need God's help for it. Because he's not just saying, think of yourselves on the same level of importance. Always he says, think others more significant, better than yourselves. That's humility. That's humbling. That's what Jesus did. Otherwise he would not have come into this world as he did. To put others ahead of himself. To put the interests of his people above his own comfort, if you like to put it that way. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's our personal, individual responsibility to contribute to the overall harmony and unity of God's church, of God's people. That was the Apostle's main concern here. That's why he brought out this staggeringly huge theology to apply it to this very concern, to this very thing that needed to be attended to in Philippi. Unity and harmony in the people of God. How did he do that? He brought them to Christ. He brought them to the mind that was in Christ Jesus. He brought them to think about who Jesus is. To the very depths of God himself. And what he became. And what was true of his death. And then he applies that and says, let this mind now be in you. Friends, we come not just to the Lord's table, but at all times, seeking to be this, seeking to have this mind that was in Christ Jesus. And you see, that was Paul's main concern. When Paul wrote Philippians, he was in prison. But his concern was not over his own comfort, but over the well-being of the church. And John Calvin, in his commentary, puts it like this, and we can close with this. Here again we may see how little anxiety Paul had as to himself, provided only it went well with the church of Christ. He was kept shut up in prison and bound with chains. He was reckoned worthy of capital punishment. Before his view were tortures, near at hand was the executioner. Yet all these things do not prevent his experiencing unmingled joy Provided he sees that the churches are in good condition. Now what he reckons the chief indication of a prosperous condition of the church is when mutual agreement prevails in it along with brotherly harmony. 
let this mind be in us that was also in Christ Jesus. Lord our God, we bring before you our need of being humbled and of being kept humble, of following the pattern and example that you have set us, not only in what is written in your word, but what is true of yourself. We thank you, Lord, for all that is revealed of how you humbled yourself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And Lord, when we remember in the Lord's Supper the death which the Lord died, help us also to seek to emulate that obedience and that humbling. Forgive us for the frequency of our shortcoming, for our pride and for our arrogance, for the way that we so often capitulate to the suggestions of the evil one that we are really something in ourselves. Grant that we may rather see that we are only something in you, but help us to see that that something we are in you elevates us to the highest position of acceptance and dignity in the presence of God. Receive our thanks now, we pray, with your blessing as we part, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Our final psalm this evening is Psalm 22. Uh, psalm 22 on page 27. A psalm, as you well know, that we often use on our communion time for uh, expressing the Lord's sufferings as they were applied to him. And indeed, as he found himself in this psalm, in the very opening words of it. Now, psalm 22, we're singing verses 23 to 26. Tune is Duke Street. The whole earth. Uh, from verse 23, sorry. Praise him, all you that fear the Lord. Give honor to him, Jacob's race. All Israel's children worship him. Bow down with awe before his face. To the end of verse 26, to God's praise. Praise him, all you that fear the Lord. Give honor to the uh-huh.
And tonight I'll go to the door on my right after the benediction. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore. Amen.